0: Two fathoms is exactly 12 feet deep, or just over three and a half meters measured straight down into the watery deep. To Mark Twain is to measure two fathoms. For most of us, a fathom isn't a quantifiable unit of measure. It isn't a noun, it's a verb, and even then, one we don't use all that often. We almost never delve, or dive, or plumb, but you'd be surprised how often we extend ourselves outward. We regularly grasp concepts or reach consensus. We jump to conclusions. When we move, we move on, not down. Maybe it's because looking down feels too much like looking in, inward at our own nature. Look too close, and the mystery of what makes us as humans tick is reduced to a list of psychological neuroses, loneliness, fear, doubt. Best to just keep looking up, forward, at that bright, dazzling horizon ahead. Or maybe it's because the bottom isn't a given. We may fathom the deep only to find out there is no riverbed, nothing we can touch with our primitive measuring tools. The floor isn't guaranteed. And when you can't be sure of it, it's easier not to look at all, not to wonder. So most of the time, we don't measure the deep. We let it pass under our feet, unremarked upon, unknown, unfathomed. But to Samuel Langhorne Clemens, the deep was a thing of beauty, of adventure. A thing so great, he only went and named himself after it. Mark Twain. He heard it on the deck of a steamboat. The deckhand was calling back to the crew. Recorded at two fathoms deep, we're safe to pass. It was in that moment that Mark Twain fell in love with the steamboat. Like Mark Twain, I too was taken by Sailor's life. In Twain's era, the steamboatmen were the adventurers. In my era, it was something different. I had once entertained the idea of becoming a boatman, not just any boatman. I wanted to be a yachty. My maternal grandmother had put the idea in my head. When I was young and eager to see far-off places, she'd given me a little adventure book called The Yachty Bible that detailed how to travel the world as a yacht hand on someone else's dime. I was enamored. Just imagine summers in Corfu, winters in the Whitsundays, springtime in the Keys. I dreamt of a big turquoise life from a tiny quarter-birth. I dreamt of adventure. As I got older, my dreams turned to plans. I thought to log my hours on the pleasure cruises around Los Angeles, working towards my captain's license, taking tourists around Catalina Island, or school field trips around on the LA Maritime Institute's giant 110-foot square-sail brigandine, the Irving Johnson. This I thought would be the start of my life as a yachty. I met the required classroom hours with relish. I bought a book to practice knots. Then the time came for my first hours at sea. Stepped onto our tiny vessel along with four other deck hands heading out on an overnight. Today's weather forecast mostly sunny, wind speed of 10 km per hour, gust of up to 16 km per hour. Precipitation 1%, minor west northwest swell mix. With likeliness of motion sickness for first time sailors 100%. Luckily, I did not spend the entire two day trip vomiting over the gunwale, but it was a near thing. The view over the aquamarine water was postcard perfect, but I do not remember anything except 48 hours of low-level, ceaseless nausea. While everyone else got to enjoy saltwater taffy at our stop on land, I did not, for fear of tossing it overboard the moment we were back on deck. One sleepless night on deck, staring up at the stars and cursing my choices was enough to convince me pretty quickly that the seafaring life was no life for me. In one single moment, The water had erased all my plans and sent me off in an entirely different direction. It can do that, you know. It did that to Mark Twain, too. A wide-eyed, adventure-hungry Mark Twain signed up as a cub pilot under Horace Bixby. With the kind of conviction only the young attempt, Mark swore he'd be happy to spend the rest of his days on the river. He too dreamed of adventure. Twain, the daring captain. Twain, the steadfast steamboatman. Twain, the fearless pilot, knower of the deep. The river, however, had other plans, and Mark Twain was taken by the current in an entirely different direction that led Mark into even deeper and murkier waters. Hero and Me is a podcast that celebrates exceptionalism not as a thing that distinguishes notable figures of history textbooks from our own times, but as an ideal achievable right now. This storytelling series parallels the lives of our heroes with the ups and downs of our own lives so that we can learn from the past, live better lives in the present, and achieve our most lofty goals in the future. If you agree that heroism is not about perfection but trial and error, Hero and Me might be the podcast for you. If you think history is fun, but also useful, Hero and Me might be the podcast for you. And finally, if you're looking for inspiration, but are sick of reading self-help books that all say the same things, the Hero and Me podcast was made just for you. In which case, you can find us at brianacrandall.com slash heroandme and subscribe to our mailing list. We will send you the episodes as they come out, along with more stories, anecdotes, and commentary about the heroes we cover. Here and Me is a Brian A. Crandall production. That's Brian with an I, A as in the letter A, and Crandall with two L's, not one. Thank you for listening, and now back to Mark and Me episode 2, Out of Depth. The first thing Mark Twain learned as a steamboat pilot was that you can't tell if the river is safe to navigate just by looking at the surface. You have to go deeper. The Ludsman throws a lead line into the water. It's basically just a weighted metal cylinder attached to a 24-foot-long rope. There's 13 little cloth flags woven into the line, marking each quarter fathom. Now, most people just care about the first couple. Who cares about the exact number? Just tell me, is this river deep enough to pass? And the first fathoms will tell you, yes, the river is good for this boat, or no, find another river. The first time Mark Twain cast his lead line into the world of literature, no one had any idea how deep that river was. The lead men of literature all waited to see, was Mark Twain's writing a yes, or was it a no? By all accounts, Mark Twain's seminal book, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, was a yes, safe enough to pass. It's the most famous of his work today, containing one of the most famous scenes in all of literature. I'm of course talking about when Tom whitewashes the fence. Tom's aunt makes him stay in on a fine summer day, He's to whitewash the fence. Being a clever, mischievous lad, Tom is undeterred. Up comes Ben Rogers, eating an apple and as free as can be. Tom feigns mock interest in his work with a brush, as if he's painting the Sistine Chapel.
1: Ah, come now, you don't mean to let on that you like it. Like it? Well, I don't see why I oughtn't to like it. Does a boy get a chance to whitewash a fence every day? That put the thing in a new light. Ben stopped nibbling his apple. Tom swept his brush daintily back and forth, stepped back to note the effect, added a touch here and there, criticized the effect again. Ben, watching every move and getting more and more interested, more and more absorbed. Presently, he said, Say, Tom, let me whitewash a little.
0: Now, Tom, he understands human nature. He resists and resists and resists this work, why, it's the best thing ever. Poor Ben starts to believe the hype. He offers Tom his apple, and while Ben sweats in the sun doing Tom's chores, Tom simply
1: sat on a barrel in the shade close by, dangled his legs, munched his apple, and planned the slaughter of more innocents. There was no lack of material. Boys happened along every little while. They came to jeer, but remained to whitewash. By the time Ben was fagged out, Tom had traded the next chance to Billy Fisher for a kite, in good repair. And when he played out, Johnny Miller bought in for a dead rat and a string to swing it with. And so on and so on, hour after hour. And when the middle of the afternoon came, from being a poor, poverty-stricken boy in the morning, Tom was literally rolling in wealth.
0: There's a particular brand of loophole-wriggling American ingenuity that we all secretly admire a little bit. Tom Sawyer has it in spades. What he lacks in moral fiber, he makes up in sheer cleverness. It's no secret Mark Twain based large portions of the adventures of Tom Sawyer on his real life and on the people of his hometown in Hannibal, Missouri. Somewhat less well-known is that Tom's whitewashing trick is exactly the kind of stunt Mark Twain would pull in real life. In fact, Mark Twain was as famous for his shenanigans as he was for his writing. He could be as slick as Tom when he wanted Once, Mark Twain got it in his head that he should write to Andrew Carnegie, who was at one time the richest man in America.
1: You seem to be in prosperity.
0: Twain began.
1: Could you lend an admirer a dollar and a half to buy a hymn book with?
0: Twain then proceeded to describe, in great detail, all the ways in which the hymn book would enrich his life spiritually and practically, assuring his intent was pious. Then he signed the letter and added a postscript.
1: Mm, P.S. Don't send the hymn book. Send the money. I want to make the selection myself
0: knowing full well that the $2 would never be spent on a hymn book. What a rascal, right? He was always up to tricks like this. As a newspaper man, Twain also intuitively understood how advertising worked. During his scheduled lecture tour, he'd have signs printed up for the occasion. Huge texts would loudly proclaim,
1: Magnificent fireworks!
0: And then underneath, in small print advertising so tiny it was difficult to make out, would read,
1: We're in contemplation for this occasion but the idea has been abandoned
0: when i was young i thought it was cute in middle school i bought a fake stud that was held in place with a magnet and i told my mom that i got my nose pierced my mom did not find this cute at all in high school i stole my history teacher's beloved shugal mcdougal a green stuffed loch ness monster that she had gotten on a trip to scotland i kidnapped shugal without a second thought and held him hostage for ransom I did eventually give him back to the teacher who had complied with my ransom demands, but Loch Ness monster napping isn't exactly the kind of idea you'd call cute. would you? In college, I pretended I was British in one class for a whole semester, just to convince the professor not to deduct points for comma splices in my writing. I might admit that this was clever, and certainly manipulative, but it's a far cry from cute. sounds nefarious when I put it that way. I assure you it was all in good fun, but when I recount the tales now, they seem a lot less glamorous and a little more sinister. That's kind of my point. As I get older, silly pranks don't seem nearly as harmless as they did in my youth. Now they seem sort of, well, cruel. The bottom of a lead line isn't just any old hunk of metal. It's a pipe filled mostly with lead. I say mostly because the bottom two inches or so are hollow. When the lead hits the bottom of the riverbed, it picks up what's down there so the leadsman can tell more about the river, if the bottom is muddy, or sandy, or if you're really out of luck, rocky. Rocky riverbed spells bad news. Sharp rocks on the bottom meant that there was a pretty good chance the hull of your boat was about to get scraped up something bad. So even if you knew the river was deep enough to pass, you had to go even deeper to make sure it was safe enough to pass. When you plumb the depths of Mark Twain a little deeper, you don't find mud. You don't find sand. You find rocks. When I was first taught about Mark Twain, he was painted as a southerner, famous for his way with words, his love of the Mississippi, and his boyish pranks. The Mark Twain most of us remember is clever Tom Sawyer, whitewashing the fence. But there's another version of Mark Twain we don't talk much about, because he's much less likable. On the surface, like Tom, we can call Mark clever, we can call him plucky. But dive a little deeper, and you could call him manipulative. This is the Tom we see on the farm. Jim has been discovered as a runaway slave and is being held in a shed on Sally and Silas Phelps' farm. Tom and Huck have decided to free their captive friend Jim. At first, it seems like Tom is trying to do the right thing here, but the more time passes, the more you realize his escape plan isn't really a clever plan at all. It's some kind of grandiose delusion that involves insane and unnecessary elements like secret rope ladders and witch magic. It reads more like a kid's game of make-believe than an actual, predetermined plan. It's utter nonsense. They make Jim keep snakes and rats in his shed. Tom writes threatening letters that scares his aunt and uncle. Tom even sneaks Jim out to help lift a heavy stone. I mean, he could have just let Jim go then and there, but he doesn't. Instead, Tom makes Jim go back to his shed, where he is, in a very real and not make-believe way, imprisoned. And why? Why does Tom do all this? For a laugh? For a story? Because the worst part of it all is that it's completely unnecessary. While Tom is creating all of these fanciful scenarios, he knows the whole time that Jim has already been freed and he could just walk out of the shed a free man if only somebody would tell Sally and Silas. But he doesn't tell them. Somewhere on all of this, Jim's humanity is completely lost and he's treated like a plaything, not a man in a shed filled with vermin, scared about his future. Tom doesn't even fess up after Aunt Polly shows up to set things right. Oh, his plan was surely entertaining. It was surely good for a laugh, but he's so wrapped up in his imagination that he sort of lost sight of things. It's not exactly recklessness. Throughout the whole series, you can see Tom's thirst for adventure leading him to some pretty real consequences. And by the time we get to the farm, we're seeing it's more than just a salesman ability to talk his friends into anything. Tom likes being the mastermind. As the series goes on, he gets drunker and drunker off his own influence until he holds whole courtrooms captivated on purpose, weaving his tale instead of just, you know, telling them who done it. I'm sorry, Reverend Johnson. I think Mark Twain knows how to write a character like that because, at his worst, Mark is exactly like Tom. He loved being the center of attention, he loved being the mastermind, the storyteller even when it did mean he occasionally lost sight of things. I mean, after all, authors were the celebrities of their day. In the era before stand-up comedy specials and YouTube skits, there were author tours. That's where the real money was. A guy would get on stage, and just like a one-hour Netflix special or an intro to a YouTube channel, the headliner would get up and tell little stories from his life for an hour in exchange for a cut of the ticket sales. Mark Twain was a headliner. He had several memoirs and an autobiography to read from. He had hours of material he tried out at banquets just ready to use. He had years of fame, just waiting to be capitalized on.
1: And ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage.
0: Twain relished it. Amazingly, Twain succeeded in the era before Barnes and Noble, In this era, famous authors made their living by going from place to place and giving speeches to sold-out, standing-room-only rooms of people who came to hear one of their world-famous stories. You were famous because you wrote books. If you were to sit in on one of his tours, you'd be captivated, surely. There'd be tales of adventure and daring. You'd hear all about life on the river, and it'd be hard not to love Twain, to go along with whatever he said. Because we want to believe Mark Twain is the best parts of Tom, the spunk, the loyalty, the adventure— So we remember Mark Twain for his way with words, his love of the Mississippi, and his boyish pranks. But that doesn't mean we should forget the other parts of Mark Twain. Because in his day, he was equally famous for his cutting one-liners and his searing criticisms. We remember the white mustache, but his contemporaries remember his cigar. Mark Twain isn't Tom whitewashing the fence. He might be Tom on the farm. He might even be worse. Look no further than his name. It's uncomfortable to see our heroes for what they are, not what we want them to be. And so we tell the jaunty Steamboat Captain version of how Mark Twain got his name. There's a very real possibility that Mark Twain didn't get his name from a steamboat captain after all. There's another equally popular myth of how Samuel Langhorne Clemens became Mark Twain. One that today we've all but forgotten. A dim drinking saloon. In comes Sam Clemens. He's a regular.
1: keep Mark Twain.
0: As in, get me two drinks and add it to my tab. A phrase he says so often he's not even called Sam down at John Piper Saloon in Virginia City. He's just Mark Twain, the guy that orders him two at a time. This is the river bottom the surface doesn't show. These are the rocks below. The Adventures of Tom Sawyer might be Twain's most enduring and widely known work, but it's definitely not his most memorable. Some of the quotes that made Twain famous weren't published essays or transcribed speeches. They were zingers and anecdotes and cruel jokes told at dinner parties. Like when Paul Bourget says,
1: I suppose life can never get entirely dull to an American because whenever he can't strike up any other way to put in his time, he can always get away with a few years trying to find out who his grandfather was.
0: Hear the answer.
1: I reckon a Frenchman's got a little standby for a dull time too, because when all other interests fail, he can turn in and see if he can't find out who his father was.
0: There were stray phrases Mark scribbled here and there in letters on book jackets that became part of his notoriety.
1: Can any plausible excuse be furnished for the crime of creating the human race?
0: That terribly dark and accusatory question was found jotted in Twain's personal copy of Charles Darwin's book. I'm not sure if it came before or after Twain's 1896 essay that explained in detail why man was not just worse than a cow, a cat, and a rooster, but the lowest animal.
1: You will move me almost to the verge of irritation by your chuckle-headed goddamn fashion of shutting your goddamn gas off without giving any notice to your goddamn parishioners. Several times you have come within an ace of smothering half this household in their beds and blowing up the other half by this idiotic, not to say criminal, custom of yours. And it has happened again today. Haven't you a telephone...
0: That unfiltered rant was sent from Mark to his gas company in a fit of pure frustration. So Twain is clever, yes, and he's puckish, yes, but he's also cruel and angry and doesn't seem to think much of mankind in general. Like the story he likes to tell about the stunt he pulled in London. He has a friend who gambled away all of his money and he can't afford a train ticket back home. So Twain sneaks him away in their carriage. And when the ticket collector came around to check the tickets, Mark made him hide underneath the seat. It was uncomfortable and surely humiliating, but he did it for a laugh. Just like Tom, Mark could convince his friends to go along with any plan, even though it didn't actually make much sense, even though the ticket collector could clearly see this guy hiding under the seats, even though Mark had actually bought an extra ticket on the sly and knew his friend had been free to ride sitting on the seat the whole time. But did he tell anyone? Of course not. That would ruin all the fun he'd have when he handed the ticket collector the right number of tickets.
1: Don't mind my friend here. He just likes to ride the trains this way.
0: Don't mind your friend there, that human being who's certainly feeling shame and discomfort. Sound familiar? And the deeper you go, the more lies you find. You find out that Tom Sawyer was a real-life, flesh-and-blood person, a San Francisco fireman that Twain met while working in the San Francisco call. No, that's not right. Our Tom Sawyer wasn't based on the fireman. Our Tom was 50% John B. Briggs and 50% William Bowen. Hmm, I wonder if that's true. Maybe Tom is Mark Twain himself, as a young boy. No, he's just some character. Some character Twain created all on his own and not based on anybody at all. The thing is, this isn't a group of historians or literary critics arguing over the facts. This is Twain unable to get his story straight. And this is where Mark Twain loses me a little. Because there's a fine line between a man who stretches the truth from time to time and a man who tells an outright lie. And if you tell so many lies you can't even keep the truth straight? What kind of man does that make you? There's 13 little cloth flags woven into a lead line that tells you how deep the water is. Each flag has its own call. Mark Twain, Mark Tauri, Mark Four... And then, there's a 14th call, one that's not written with a flag. No bottom. That's when you run out of lead line. It's beyond what you can know for sure. You know it's deep enough to pass, but how deep exactly it goes, you can't tell from here. And that is where things get murky for me. Maybe Mark Twain is the daring steamboat pilot he made himself out to be. Maybe not. Maybe he's some dark and angry man obsessed with his own fame. Or maybe none of that is even real. Maybe it's all just an act. So I've got a dilemma then. Without a bottom, how do we know which version of Mark Twain to believe? Mark Twain the steamboat captain? Mark Twain the drunk at the bar? Or someone else? I talk with Brian about this a lot. Brian is a fellow filmmaker and the creator of such excellent podcasts as Davey and me. He's made a lot of autobiographical work before, so he knows how to navigate these waters as well as anyone. As crusty as Mark Twain may be on the outside, is that really who he is? So how do you tell the difference between a true cynic and somebody who's just a little bit crusty on the outside?
1: How can you tell the difference? You can't know that. That's why you have to just stick to your own values regardless of... Who you mean? I don't, I don't know. You can't really tell people's intentions. Only God can be the judge of other people. We, we 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 won't we won't know. Maybe over time you can see. Maybe with like. Maybe if you see the results of their life rather than what they're actually like saying.
0: Maybe that's kind of like where you're going with this, like. Um. No bottom. If there's no bottom, we have to read the water and take our best guess. So here's my best guess about Mark Twain. Remember that story about making his friend ride under the seat on the train back from London, where he humiliated his friend to make a stranger laugh?
1: Don't mind my friend here. He dislikes to ride the trains this way.
0: I don't think that's the important part of the story. I think the important part of that story is the part where he bought his friend a ticket. Not the thing he said, but the thing he did. I mean, sure, Mark Twain spent 3,000 odd words ridiculing the German language in some of his books. I mean, he accuses German men of being only 30% masculine and the rest feminine or neuter. He claims they're confused. He claims they're difficult. He makes numerous jokes at the German's expense. That's all what he said. What he did was different. In his private life, Twain loved German. He learned their language inside and out. He taught his kids. He gave speeches in German. Which makes me think Mark Twain's humor isn't an act. It's a cover. A cover for human decency. When by all accounts, human decency is often boring to read about. This is the careful, thoughtful work of a man who teases because he loves. Amidst all of Twain's escapades in The Innocents Abroad is some pretty heavy stuff. Twain levies criticisms of the way imperial nations like France are obsessed with their own banal histories. He exposes his own woefully ignorant expectations of other cultures. He lampoons the overly romantic descriptions of the Holy Land of the day that were both widespread and utterly false. And you don't mind, because he's making you laugh while he does it. Sure, I mean, sometimes it's hard to tell what's true and what's not. Yeah, he stretches it a little bit. He embellishes. He milks it for a laugh. But it doesn't really matter. I mean, Twain's escapades in the innocence abroad are travel not just for travel's sake, but in service of a larger aim. In Twain's own words,
1: Travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness, and many of our people need it sorely on these accounts. Broad, wholesome, charitable views of men and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little corner of the earth all one's lifetime.
0: I mean this is Twain, using his wits and his charms not to manipulate or connive, but to make us better people. To make fairly difficult to swallow medicine go down easier. It's the difference between being nice and being good. Tom Sawyer's antics weren't always kind on others. It's hard to call him a nice boy, but his heart is always in the right place. The intent is there, and so is the result, even if the means are sometimes less well-meaning than the ends. Mark Twain wasn't exactly kind either. Yes, he was a bit cruel at times and a little self-involved. But yes, he was also quite adventurous and undeniably funny. And yes, at times he was a good man, too. Tom Sawyer wasn't all one thing, and neither was Mark Twain. And neither am I. None of us are. And maybe, just maybe, that is exactly what Mark Twain is trying to say in The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. And that is my best guess. This was episode two of Mark and Me, Out of Depth. If you like what you listen to and want to receive more stories about our heroes you can't find anywhere else, subscribe to the Hero and Me podcast newsletter at brianacrandall.com slash me.